All right. If you'll please stand for the reading of God's word, uh, we're going to be reading in Jude. Uh, it'll, it'll be in these blue Bibles on page 594. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we welcome you to take one of these home, uh, and it, it'll be our gift to you. Uh, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 19. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, uh, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds and of uh, and uh, deeds of ungodliness that have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these whose cause, who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, the Bible tells us that all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to you. And so, Lord, we stand in humble submission to your, to your authority. You have authority over the entire cosmos. You have authority over every spiritual being that inhabits, that inhabits the spiritual realm. Lord, you have authority over all governments and the environment. And God, you are just in control. And Jesus, we, we thank you for that. And Jesus, we, as we celebrate and acknowledge your authority, we thank you that you alone, you alone have authority in the church. That this is not the church of any man or group of men or or even like-minded believers. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, as we remember that, we pray that we would be found in humble submission to the word that you have spoken. That we would, God, become serious-minded. And that we would, we would, God... Focus our attention, Lord, and not allow ourselves to be distracted from the truths that you want to speak to us today. But, Lord, that you would expose our hearts, that you would heal our hearts, Lord God, that you would encourage our hearts as only you can do through your word. So we thank you for this gift of your written objective word this morning and ask that we would be changed because we have heard it and been in the presence of its preaching, Lord God. God, I ask you to help me, Lord. You know my many sins and my great brokenness, Lord God, my frailty. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would overshadow me this morning and speak through me. God, keep me faithful to the very text of your word, not varying either above the line or below the line, but Lord, staying steadfast to what you have written. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, so we have spent the last two messages in our series on Jude uh, looking at the character of false teachers. 
We've looked at the character of false prophets and the character of false believers. Jude has described for us this type of of person, these types of people in great detail for one very specific purpose. And that is so that we would avoid them. If you want to know, or if you know rather, what poison ivy looks like, you're less likely to touch it. If you know what a rattlesnake sounds like, you're less likely to be bitten by it. And so Jude has told us a lot in the last couple of weeks of our study of this very short little book. He's told us a lot about the nature of false teachers. And he says in, his, in this passage, he says that they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord and, and of our God into sensuality and they, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He tells us that they're people who rely on their dreams and they defile the flesh and they reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. And he says that they model the example of Old Testament villains, greedy villains like Cain and Balaam and Korah. By way of analogy, we saw this last week that Jude tells us that false teachers are like hidden reefs that are just waiting to shipwreck us. That they are gluttonous shepherds feeding themselves instead of feeding the sheep. That they're clouds without rain and fruitless trees. That they're wild waves of the sea, unstable in every way. That they're wandering stars that are condemned to gloomy darkness forever. And from Scripture, he paints a very vivid picture to depict this fiery judgment that awaits them in hell. He compares them to the rebellious children of Israel who fell dead in the wilderness. He he compares them to the angels who rebelled with Satan and were cast out of heaven and into darkness, chained there until the final day. He, He compares them to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on whom God rained fire because of their immorality. And in our discussion of these things, we've seen very specific examples that tell us that false teachers, false prophets, false believers are alive and well today. This, the context of this passage is not limited to 2,000 years ago. That, that it's still very applicable, very meaningful, and very pertinent to today's church. Amen? And what he's telling us is that we, they're, they're here today and we must not align with them by listening to them, by contributing financially to them or promoting their teach, their teachings. Jude is telling us, this has kind of been the theme of this book, the central theme, and we've repeated it every week from the very first message. Jude tells us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And as we've said, this means being able to clearly define the biblical gospel. So now we're four weeks into this series, and I want to ask you, if someone were to approach you, and they said, what is the gospel? What is it? I hear you talking about the gospel all the time. What is the gospel? Be honest with yourself. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but could you confidently tell them what the gospel is? And if you can't, that should be a cause of some alarm, some great concern for you. Because the gospel for us as believers is everything. It's everything. If you can't 
define it clearly. Let me press even a little further and tell you or ask you, if you can't define the gospel clearly, how do you know that you've believed it properly? How do you know? Let me tell you something. There are a lot of things out there, a lot of teachings, a lot of philosophies that claim to be the gospel. There's a lot of them. So how do you know, if you can't define it, that you believe the right gospel? There's a lot of things that people call the gospel. Paul knew this in his day. He said in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul said, I want you to understand this, because this is a big deal in our culture today. Paul says when it comes to the message of the gospel, there is no wiggle room. There's no wiggle room in the gospel. The gospel is what it is. It is defined by God's word. And and we can't add to it or take away from it. And Paul goes so far to say that if we should be found doing that, or even if a spiritual being, an angel, should arrive in our midst to do that, Paul said, let that being, let that person be under a curse. I think he's talking pretty seriously about the gospel. Amen? But we can't only be able to define it. I've told you this week in and week out. We have to be ready to defend the true gospel against all counterfeits because like I said, there are plenty of them out there. And this means confronting by name devious deceivers and gently correcting those who are sincerely confused, who have been taken captive by false teachings. First Peter chapter 3 gives us this principle. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Though we abominate false gospels, we are not God's warriors who go and insult and tear down and and, and people that believe false gospels. We, we approach them realizing our own frailty and we, we approach them in gentleness and respect and call them to something better. So in our text, Jude returns again to what he spoke about earlier and his subject is God's wrath on the false prophets. Now he's coming back to this, but I want to tell you, this is not overkill. He's not just, you know, talking in a circle here. He wants us to know that the way that they're perverting God's message of the gospel is a big deal. False teachers that he's referring to, and I've referred to in the last few weeks, they're deceiving and they're dangerous for this very reason. They do not hang out in pagan temples. They're found right among us. They don't, you know, uh, often are seen it with open debauchery. They, they may even have an appearance of morality. And it's that, it's that deceptive cloak of churchianity that makes them very, very, very dangerous. They're like the Pharisees of whom Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Watch this. You travel over land and sea to win one single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as much a a child of hell as you are. 
So Jude tells us, when he returns to this theme of God's judgment on false teachers, he tells us that none of their crimes are going to go unnoticed. And none of their crimes will continue unaddressed by God. They will not get off scot-free. There's a great day of judgment that is approaching when God is going to punish all of their sins and, and once and for all, the scales will be balanced forever. Hudson Taylor, one of my personal heroes, was a great missionary to China in the 19th century. Exemplary life. Everyone should read books about Hudson Taylor. But he said this. He said, there are three great truths. First, that there is a God. Do we agree? Second, that he has spoken to us in the Bible. Do we agree? And third, Hudson Taylor says, the third great truth is that God means what he said. This is Jude's point. After telling us what the false teachers are like, Jude once again borrows from the contemporary literature of his day and he describes what people like this, these false teachers, have to look forward to. He says this, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, this is always somewhat of a difficulty for people who are just exploring the the uh, book of Jude. They come to this passage and they say, what is this, all this quoting of Enoch, the seventh from Adam? He's quoting here, not from a, a book of the Old Testament or a book uh, even of Scripture, but he's, he's quoting from an intertestamental work. What I mean by that is a book that, that kind of surfaced between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's known to us as the book of Enoch or First Enoch. And it's important to note that Jude is not endorsing this book as inspired scripture, similar to what we have in the other, or, or the, the 66 books of the Bible. Jude is not even affirming that Enoch is the legitimate author, which is highly unlikely. What he's doing is he's using a source familiar to his readers to illustrate the coming judgment on the ungodly. And we might, and we often do, do something similar in our day, that we take contemporary references that that the general public would understand, and we apply uh, them as an analogy of God's truth. Let me give you an example. If I said to you this morning, how many of you remember 9-11? Raise your hand. Of course, most of us who were alive and adults or, or at least grown remember 9-11, the horror of that day. If I were to remind you of 9-11 and say to you in my own theme of God's wrath, that God's wrath, when it is poured on this world, will be much, much worse than 9-11. Now, that's an effective strategy. Why? Because you all remember 9-11. That's, that's what Jude is, is doing similarly here. I'm using a currently, a culturally rather familiar reference to help you, my audience, understand my teaching. So you might remember also that Jude does 
this actually twice in his letter. If he doesn't make it hard enough for Bible teachers once, he does it a second time. And we always have to explain what he's doing here in his references. He, he also referred to the apocryphal testament of Moses in, chap, in verse 9, rather. And in both cases, a first century Jew was likely to be familiar with these texts. So Jude used them to drive home the point that he was trying to make about judgment. The language that he extracts from the book of Enoch is appropriate for confirming Jude's theme of divine judgment on the ungodly. So he borrows it. I mentioned before how in a few places in Scripture, Titus, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Titus and Acts rather, uh, Paul quotes pagan philosophers in the same way. He knows that his audience would be familiar with them and so uses them to make a great point about the gospel. But what I want you to do is sometimes this point about the book of Enoch becomes such a sticking point for people, positively and negative. But what I wanted to, 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 to beg you, to please you this morning, is to not be distracted by it. Because if you're distracted by the book of Enoch, you will miss the entire point of what Jude is saying. It is of much greater importance it, it, it is, it, to us what he is pulling from this writing from Enoch. A, a description laid before us of the final judgment. And he's applying it to the false teachers he spent all the previous verses warning us about. He envisions the Lord coming with a multitude of warring angels that will, quote, execute judgment and, quote, convict the ungodly on Christ's behalf. They, the, these angels, when they come with the Lord, will carry out the condemnation that Jude says that God has already decreed over these false teachers in verse 4. He said in verse 4 that they were already designated for condemnation. It's interesting that, that when you read that, Jude does not say these guys are in big trouble and they better repent or things are going to get ugly. What he says is they're already designated for condemnation. Now, we talked about that a few weeks ago, so we won't focus on it, but I don't want you to lose that. This is not a tipping the scales to righteousness versus wickedness. But Jude says they've already sealed their fate. Their debt has been racked up, and Jude is promising with this passage that that debt will one day come due. To convict the ungodly when he refers to that, it's not referring to the sweet conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer. What he's saying is that in that final hour, these people will be found guilty of their crimes before holy and righteous, unblinking God. Let's take a look. Let's go back to that passage and look at Jude's uses of the word ungodly. It's amazing how many times he sticks this word into this passage. He says, to convict the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that's two. That they have committed in such an ungodly way, that's three. And of the harsh things that ungodly sinners, that's four, have spoken against him. Jude uses a form of ungodly, this word, six times in the book about the dangers of false teachers. You think he's trying to drive home a point? He wants us to know that no matter where we find these people that he's describing, no matter who else endorses them, no matter what religious or biblical language they use, that these people are diametrically opposed to God's truth. 
They are diametrically opposed to his plan that has been revealed in the gospel. They're diametrically opposed to his holiness. Their ungodliness is exposed in both their immorality and their blasphemy. These are grumblers, he says, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This list of their sins reaffirms what we have already discovered about their nature in the previous verses. He says they are grumblers and malcontents. Well, Paul, uh, Jude told us earlier that, that they were people who have rejected authority. And mostly they have rejected authority in favor of their own vain and subjective experience. He tells us this in verse 8. He also tells us in verse 8, uh, when he says that they're following s- sinful desires, it reaffirms verse 8 when it says that they defile the flesh. In other words, they're, they're more driven by their flesh than God's holiness, far more driven by that. And then he says that by being loudmouth boasters and showing favoritism to gain advantage, this means that they care more about power and about reputation than they ever have about the truth or about God's glory. And because of this, this is the argument that Jude is framing. Because of this, the judgment that is coming to them will be two things. It will be severe and it will be well deserved. Not one of these false prophets will be able to turn their head toward heaven and accuse God of injustice. Their judgment will be well deserved. As I've said many times already, these things aren't written simply to expose false prophets who make their way into the church. That's a noble thing, but it's not the only reason they're written. They're written for us so that we will avoid and reject people like this. And in so doing, avoiding and rejecting, we will escape their judgment. I love the turn Jude takes in the text. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude tells us that none of these infiltrations by false teachers into the church should take us by surprise. We've been warned by Jesus and by his apostles that people like this would surely show up. As scoffers, Jude calls them scoffers, and this means that they take particular aim at the law of God. They blow off the commandments of Jesus. And they even mock the warnings of their own judgment. If you tell them that they are in danger of hell, they laugh, they mock. They are shameless in their own irreverence. In the middle of a, of a letter that's designed to warn the church about the dangers of false teachers, Jude highlights the gospel. I love that. By proving that their working was foreseen. Jude is now pointing to the gospel because he's, he's saying, look, this didn't take God by surprise at all. What do I mean it highlights the gospel? It's because the cornerstone of our message is that God is sovereign. What that means is, if you're not familiar with that term, it means that God is absolutely in control. Absolutely in control. And this means to say that nothing happens over which God does not have control. 
and nothing is done that is hidden from his sight. God tells us in the positive sense of sovereignty that our salvation, yours and mine, was decreed by God even before the the creation of the world, before you were ever conceived, before your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents were ever conceived. If you are one of God's, it's because he decreed it way back then. Ephesians 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now watch. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now watch. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God chose us and God predestined us to be holy and blameless. And what I believe is what the Bible says, that God's plans cannot fail. But it's not only that God has chosen us and chosen us to be holy and blameless. The Lord also watches over every action of the ungodly. They will not be able to mount a a defense in the end because God has seen everything they have done and kept meticulous records of it. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The fact that the blasphemy and the immorality of the false teachers was seen in advance, this is the good news. It's where the gospel comes in. The fact that these things were seen in advance and that the Holy Spirit warned us about them through the prophets and through Christ proves that God is really in control. Nothing surprises him. We learn from Jude that those who God has chosen for salvation are both warned and protected from the poison of these deadly vipers. He addresses his letter like this. Remember way back to verse 1. He addresses the letter that he's writing like this. He says, To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now can we just focus again on those words real quick? Called, beloved, and kept are very important words for us to understand in the understanding of the gospel. Our calling by God to himself proves that we are loved by God. And the fact that we are loved gives us confidence that we are kept for Christ. What a great promise that is. Called and loved and kept. God demonstrates that he's keeping us by telling us which teachers we should listen to and warning us about the ones we should avoid. When we heed those warnings, we have confidence that we're called, loved, and kept by God. Because of this, please listen to me. I don't want to make this a matter of of legalism as much as it is a matter of life because that's exactly what it is. Because of this, this uh, you know, demonstration of God's love by, by encouraging us and warning us, we should be devoted to the reading and studying of God's Word. 
If we don't, if you don't, if you think that you can just like be a Christian by your affiliation with some church or some morality that you embrace, if you, if you don't study God's word, how will you ever know the genuine from the false? Because it's not, it's not revealed by your best thinking, it's revealed by God's best thinking. That's how we know. How will we ever understand the scope, the massive scope of the gospel and be able to defend it apart from this book? Some of us are still living under the lie that the gospel was the introductory message. And that once we've signed on the dotted line, we have very little use for it anymore. We thought once we were in, We could move on to more mysterious, more deep things in God's Word. But do you know what the Bible, particularly the New Testament, describes as mystery? Do you know? The New Testament uses the word mysterion 27 times. 27 times. And at least 21 of those times are referring to one thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know the deep things of God, if you want to plumb the depths of God's mysteries, of things long held back from humanity, plumb the depths of the gospel. And you will know the deepest secrets, the deepest mysteries of God. We get so hung up on questions about whether angels had sex with people from Genesis 6 and what the identity of the Antichrist is that we miss out on the big story of the gospel. The big story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, forever exalted throughout all eternity, took on flesh, became one of us, fully God, fully man, and took upon him the task of fulfilling all the law for us, that he took on the task of bearing all the sin for all the brokenness and deadness of our life and died on a cross as a substitutionary atonement for our sin and yet was not held captive by the grave, but was raised three days later later, and now has ascended to the Father where He reigns as our representative and our substitute. He reigns over all creation and will one day, all of His reign will be consumed. It will be consummated on planet earth and we will see a whole new heavens and a whole new earth. That is the gospel. That is the gospel and all of God's mystery, all of the deepest thinking of God is tucked in that message. The Bible says the prophets of the Old Testament long for this day that you and I live in. The Bible says that the salvation that you and I enjoy are the very things that angels long to look into. And yet to us, the called, the loved, and the kept for Jesus, it has been revealed in the gospel. God did not give us the gospel to check off a box and to sign on the dotted line and move on to bigger things. God has given us this message for every single day. I love Martin Luther. 
I get Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a man with many, many rough edges, but he loved Jesus. And he said this, I love this. He said, the highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well. In His infinite goodness, as a faithful God, He has grandly cared for us in that He gave His dear Son for us. Do not let this mirror and throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. That's what we need. We need God to be revealed to us in His gospel every day. We need to be humbled and broken before the love of God that knows no bounds every single day. Judas concludes our text today by leveling an indictment at the false believers. He says that they cause divisions and that they are worldly people and that they are devoid of the Spirit. We've talked a lot about the tendency of false prophets to cause division And we've discussed at length their worldliness. But what about the accusation that that Jude now brings before us? That they are devoid of the Spirit. This is interesting. I want you to think about this. The last couple of messages I named a lot of names. And this accusation that they are devoid of the Spirit is interesting because many of the people who in our day are exposed as dangerous wolves boast about their fullness of the Spirit. Because they do signs and wonders and because they draw big crowds when they speak. But I want to ask you from the gospel, from the words of our Lord and Savior, are signs and wonders always a sign of being full of the Spirit? That's what Jesus says. It says in Matthew seven twenty two, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness see signs and wonders alone are not a sign that someone is full of the spirit if they were Jesus would never say, I never knew you. He would not call them workers of lawlessness. A life where we are found to be glorifying Christ alone is much more of a sign that we are walking in the fullness of the Spirit. John fifteen eight says, By this, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples it's not about performing signs and wonders but by bearing much fruit by the spirit and it is by that that god is glorified but what about the crowd surely people who draw such big crowds, who have such incredible influence, who have millions of subscribers to their podcasts and YouTube channels, surely they have to be full of the Spirit by mere measure of their influence. Well, again, same chapter, different verse. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And watch this. And those who enter by it are many. Crowds, listen to me. Crowds mean nothing. Jude doesn't say that that these people are Christians who have less of the Spirit than other Christians, as though there's some kind of you know measurement like that. He says that they are devoid of the Spirit. He means that the Spirit cannot be found in them within the smallest degree. And what that tells you, brothers and sisters, if the Spirit cannot be found to them in, in, within them in the smallest degree, what it tells you is you gain absolutely nothing by these people. Well... That guy has a good teaching. This woman has this incredible ministry. Let me ask you this. Would you, on a hot summer Texas day, would you refresh yourself with an ice-cold glass of water that had little beads of sweat on the outside of it, just, just tempting you after you've, you've been outside in the hot sun? Would you, be, would you be tempted to refresh yourself with that kind of an ice-cold glass of water if you knew that it only contained just the tiniest bit of raw sewage. That's a horrible analogy, Mark. But it's exactly what I'm talking about. Sometimes when we swallow what the false teachers are laying in front of us, we're swallowing a whole lot more than what we thought we were bargaining for. Amen? You would not do that. You would, as soon as you knew what the, that glass contained, you would avoid it like the plague so that you wouldn't get the plague. You have nothing to gain by listening to these people, these false prophets, teachers, believers. Settle for nothing. Make up your mind this morning that from this point forward, you will settle for nothing less than the truth of the gospel. Love the gospel. In it, it alone is life. Love the gospel as the Bible, God's written objective word, defines it. Get in the habit of asking people who make spiritual claims where they see those things in Scripture. And say what I always like to say. Can you provide a chapter and a verse for me, please? You'll see a lot of people quickly withdraw what they said was the Bible. Make sure when they give you chapter and verse to check the context because a lot of times people use the Bible and they twist the meaning of it. Psalm 119.105. You're probably familiar with this verse. It says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Those who walk in the light of this book won't stumble. They will not be tripped up. The more you know God's word, the more you know God. Let me say that again. The more you know God's word, the more you know God. Because it is his designated vehicle to reveal himself to you. It is through God's word that you know God's truth, God's presence, and God's power. Would you stand with me? I want to invite you to the table. We are going to take communion together. As we say, this is for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus. If you're not, or if you're not sure, can we just invite you to hold off this morning?
this would mean nothing to you. I've used this analogy before, but it's a, it's a pertinent one. Um, this morning I could ask you to take my wedding ring and put it on your finger. And to you, it might be a little bit of gold that had some value, some, some you know, things that might be cool to have, but it would not have for you the deep meaning that it has for me. Because this reminds me that back in 1993, I gave my life to a woman. And I said, till death do we part. And, and it, it's a symbol that I am committed to that woman. So sure, you could wear it. I'm sure a lot of you have similarly sized fingers, but it would mean nothing to you like it means to me. So if you're not a believer, same thing applies to this table. Don't, don't blaspheme God for a little bit of juice and a cracker. Just wait. And use the time that you wait to come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord Jesus... I've heard this this morning. My heart is convicted. I am not right with you. And so this morning, Lord, I place my trust in you. I believe that you died. You didn't just die. You died for my sins. You rose again so that I could have new life. Lord, you have ascended to the Father where you reign. And Lord, I believe that you're coming back again. I declare to you this morning, Lord, that you are God. You are now the Lord. You are the boss. And I will order my life according to your will. If you haven't done something like that, acknowledging your own brokenness and, and, and inability before God, can I just really invite you not to come to communion, but to do that this morning? As I always say, there's two things I've got to ask you. First of all, do that. Second of all, let me know. Let me know. We're not going to parade you up and put a spotlight on you and throw garlands around your neck or anything like that. We're just going to celebrate the fact that God's family just got bigger and that we are doing this together. So please, if you feel the need to, to, to give your life to Jesus this morning, we encourage you to do that. But don't walk out of here without letting someone know. I'm going to ask you now to just come, if you are a believer, and receive the elements. Take them back to your seat, and we'll, we'll take those together. In Mark's gospel, we read these words. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. Let's take the, the, the bread together. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning before this company of my brothers and sisters that it was your body that was broken instead of mine. The Lord, the taste of that bread on my tongue reminds me that you were my substitute, that you stood in my place, that you fulfilled God's law and took my punishment all at the same time. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. You've given me your body. I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us all to give you ours. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, 
I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's take the cup. Lord Jesus, I thank you that with this cup I am reminded that I am not under an old covenant of do this and be blessed, but I am under a new covenant that says believe and be saved. And I thank you that you have rescued us from sin and death. And Lord, I pray that we would go in the power of that reality and walk in newness of life empowered by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to just speak this very appropriate benediction over you this morning. From Romans 16.25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.